feel like we should be doing a little bit of a graduation ceremony today and everyone should be receiving some sort of diploma. After 11 months, we come to the final verses, the final words of Acts. And uh, what a journey it's been. I, I hope it's been encouraging to you, challenging to you, eye-opening some, inspiring, life-shaping. I, I, I pray, as I always do, that we're doers of the Word and not just hearers of it. Scripture is interesting, it's fascinating, and learning new things can be, can be compelling. But I, I hope always, all of us, will be listening with an eye to, God, what would you have me do with this? What do you want me to do with this? How do I live this? How do I live out your word? And I, I pray that will be the case for you today. Let's pray. Father God, as I open up your word, as I read it, or as I try to talk about it, explain it, I pray that I would be true and accurate to the text and to the intent of your Holy Spirit who inspired it. Father, I pray that as we hear it, we would have understanding. As we see it, we would perceive it. Most of all, Father, I pray that we would respond to it and respond to it rightly. There'll be some sort of response. Some will be convinced. Some will remain in disbelief. Father, I pray that you would move us towards belief if disbelief is our bent. That's how we came in. I pray it would not be how we would exit. For those who are convinced, I pray they'd be more than just convinced of the truth of this for themselves, but they would be convinced of the necessity of the truth of this for everybody that they know and see. Father, we would speak and live in a way that makes much of you always. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for hearing our songs of praise. Thank you for listening to our prayers and responding to them. Thank you for knowing what we need before we even ask. Thank you for your grace. Grace that's given us by Jesus, who lived and died and lives again so that we might live. I pray this in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Now, I, I titled this, I just want to throw this out there for a moment. This is a concession to Zach, our our children's ministry pastor, we have a discussion every week in staff about the passage we just discussed or the passage just preached and the one coming up. And Zach said, I would really not be doing justice to this sermon if I didn't title my sermon, When in Rome. And I thought, that's way too corny. So I'm only going to give it a subtitle of that. Okay, so it doesn't get the whole title. It just gets a subset. So Paul has now finally made it to Rome. And here's, we, here's where we are. The culmination of a long, long journey. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appear to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. That's worth you underlining. The hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? We'll see that in just a moment. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, 
And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. With regard to this sect, what is this sect they're talking about? They're talking about this sect that by now it started to have a name, an identification. And most of them were derogatory. But one that was positive was this. They were simply called the way. The people of the way. The people who had accepted the teachings of this rabbi Jesus, but far more than just accepting his teachings. And let me make a clear point this morning. I want to deviate from the text just for a second. A Christian is someone who accepts the teachings of Jesus, yes, but that doesn't begin to define what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who staked their life on the truth that Jesus Christ lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, rose physically, and is coming again visibly. They staked everything on the resurrected Jesus. He wasn't just a teacher whose teachings they found compelling or worthwhile. They believed in every way that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. They saw him raised. They visited with him. They talked with him. They saw him ascended into heaven, and they believed with all their hearts that one day he's going to remedy every ill in this world, personally and collectively, upon his return. This is what made them believers. They were people of the way. But this is what the Romans said. As they're interrogating Paul, they said, this sect, the way, Christianity, everywhere is being spoken against. Now let's just pause there and think about this for a moment. This is increasingly the culture that you and I live in. Increasingly the culture that you and I live in. Even here in the U.S., that some once thought was this city set upon a hill, like the biblical definition of church. Even now, everywhere, Christianity is being spoken against. And here's our challenge. What are you going to do growing up with these children that we dedicated to the Lord and parenting them? What are you going to do as an adult, someone who has to live and work in a culture that increasingly speaks against that which you believe is absolutely true? Not just true for you, not just one of many ways of believing or thinking or living, but the way that God has given us and that God defines what life is about. He defines when life begins. He defines things like marriage and family and sex and gender and lifestyle and behaviors and values and morality. How do you live in such a world like this? And you need to understand this has never been mainstream. Contrary to whatever versions of history we've embraced, it's never been mainstream to be committed to King Jesus. It's never been the majority position. It wasn't during the time of Christ, it wasn't during the birth of the church, and it's surely not now. It's always been controversial. And to follow Christ in every time and every place since the time of Jesus, just as he said, it has been, will be costly. This is where you have to decide how much will you pay? How firm will you be? How strong will be your stance? I, I've referenced this book once or twice before, I think, and I want to read you a short portion or summarize a very short portion of a book called Being the Bad Guys. Being the Bad Guys. Stephen McAlpin is a pastor in Australia. The subtitle of this book is called How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Here's his question. What's the secret to resisting the cultural push that paints us as the bad guys? Is it just treating it as a white knuckle ride, gritting our teeth? Hoping it passes? These cannot be long-term strategies, he says. Sooner or later, we will run out of knuckles 
Antif. What instead is the answer? He says the key is to put our fear in the right place. The key is to put our fear in the right place. He uses Daniel as an example. In the book of Daniel, standing against the tide of godlessness and paganism in his culture, put fear in the right place to elevate our fear of God. Not that Daniel was scared of God, but that Daniel so revered God that his opinion is the only opinion that counted. So much so that the opinions of men became very small, even the opinions of lions. It didn't mean that he hated those men. It's just simply that he saw them as they were, just small, like himself. But only God is large, and only God's opinion is the one that we count. McAlpin says, the truth is, like Daniel, you may be thrown to the lions, the cultural ones. You may lose your job, your influence, your status. You may even lose friends and the approval of your family, no matter how lovingly you explain yourself. But our final hope is this, that Jesus' resurrection is ushering in a new age. We have not received it fully yet, but the Spirit's down payment means we are guaranteed that scorn, disgrace, and being sidelined are not the end. And in summary to his chapter on Daniel, he says we should all adopt Daniel's strategy. Now this is not in your notes, this part's extra. But I would encourage you to write these three words that describe Daniel's strategy. He says Daniel's strategy was to be faithful, to be faultless, and to be fearless. Faithful to King Jesus, no matter the cost. Faithful. Faultless. So that like Paul, you can stand up before the masses and say, I've done you no wrong. I've committed no crime. There are no charges against me that can stick. But to be fearless. Fearless. Rightly regarding the opinion of God more than the opinion of any other person or fear of any circumstance. That sounds a lot like the man that we've been seeing the life of over these last 11 months, the Apostle Paul. Let's look at what happened in this text when it comes to Paul now finally arriving in Rome. One is this, God providentially calls this. We know that. We've seen that so much. I was just doing some Google research, and I happened upon someone's academic paper about providence in the book of Acts, and it was just interesting how someone had just gone through the text and noted all the different providential acts of God. There's no way it's circumstantial. There's no way it's coincidental. The way that this happens, the way that it plays out, shows clearly, and I'll simply summarize by saying this, God's hand was in all of it. In the details that seem small to us, and the details that seem huge to us. God's putting all this together, working in every person, those people for and against him, every circumstance, natural and supernatural, and he's bringing about this. He's causing Paul to arrive at what we would say are the very gates of the ends of the earth. And that's the way Acts began. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen. And now when we get to the end of Acts, we see the fulfillment of the beginning of it. They are now at the ends of the earth. They're at that one place where the cities, where the roads, where the commerce, where the industry, where the culture, where the military goes to the ends of the earth. And it all emanates from here. They've made it there. And again, this was the plan from the beginning. You'll receive my power. You'll go to the ends of the earth, said Acts 1.8. Acts 19.21. Paul's desire, he says, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And Paul's desire was given him by God who had the same desire for Paul. We see in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by him, said, take courage. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And what we just saw a couple of weeks ago, chapter 27, verse 24, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. You're going to go all the way to the top. You're going to appear before governors and kings. and You're going to take the gospel there. Now, as Paul is speaking here, he's seeking his own vindication. I mean, we see this, Paul is defending himself. It's not primary. That's not what he's primarily about. But he's making a point that I'm here not because I've committed any crime, not because I have undone anything in Judaism or spoken against my people, their history, their religion, their temple, simply because I've told the truth. He's seeking his own vindication, and he makes it clear, and this is critical for us, I'm here by choice. I'm here by choice. I, I could have been set free. They could have let me go. But I'm here because I want to be here. I'm willing to be in chains for your sake. I'm here by choice. Compare this to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, what Paul wrote, presumably why he was imprisoned in Rome. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Can you imagine that? He could have gone back home. He could have gone and taken leave of all this. He could have retired. He could have taken it easy. He could have been done with all the pain and all the suffering, all the verbal and physical abuse. He could have been done with all the animosity and the conflict and the strife. He said, no, I'm, I'm in chains. I'm in chains for Christ. My imprisonment is for Him. Why? Because Paul wanted all for the hope of the gospel. Period. I'm here, and I'll suffer if need be, so that you can find hope. So you can find the hope that the gospel offers. He says this, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul knew that there was one belief, one statement, one foundation, I mean, one hill to die on for him. And it was why he was still imprisoned. It, it was why that the Jews had so rejected what he said. It would be the dismantling of all their injustice towards Jesus. It would be the undoing of all that they had said and taught about Jesus. It would have been the indictment of all their unbelief about Jesus. It's the resurrection. And I put this statement in your notes. It's the sin quanon of Jesus, of Paul for Jesus, of Jesus for Paul. It's the non-negotiable. It, it literally means the without which not. The one thing that we can't take away from the story is resurrection. He says, this is why I'm in chains. This is the hope of Israel, though. It's the hope of the world. We celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. We celebrate the whole story. Jesus who came, and by his own testimony, to save sinners. And how would Jesus save sinners? Simply by being born? No. Being acknowledged, no. Being revered or worshipped by wise men, no. Living a good life. Teaching well. Inspiring. Motivating. Displaying magnificence of God. Would that do it? No. Many saw and never believed. Or what about dying? Would dying alone do it? Would simply dying on the cross be sufficient if he was not raised? Because if he's not raised, he's not who he said he is. He didn't do what he said he would do. And death still prevails. And Jesus suffers the consequence 
for sin called death. Jesus was not a sinner. Death did not defeat him. Sin was conquered. Life was given, just as he said, and he's raised. He says, this is everything. This is the hope of Israel. This is the hope that you can have a new life, that you can be forgiven, that it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. You don't have to stay in the condition you've always stayed in. You don't have to be separated from God. You don't have to be at odds with God. It's not hopeless. Death gives way to life, and that life is a life of Christ. Whoever believes in me will live and never die, he said, because I'm the resurrection and the life. This is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of Israel. And Paul wanted to defend the gospel against all the false accusations of what it is and what it isn't. The false claims made against it because, as we've seen up to this point, his Jewish accusers made lots of false accusations. Paul is undoing the law. He's preaching against the law. No, he wasn't. What Paul was saying is the law can only condemn you. If you think by works of the law, you're going to reach the, the status of God. You're going to justify yourself before God. You'll be acceptable to him because you did good enough then the law will be your judge. By works of the law, no one can be made righteous. Paul taught the right place of the law and that Jesus fulfilled the law, that he kept it for us, that the righteousness we need when we stand before God is alien righteousness outside of us. It has to come from somewhere else or else we're doomed. We have no hope, but we have the righteousness of Christ. This is what he taught. Did he teach the undoing of the temple? No. He taught that Jesus is our true temple. Jesus is the means to reaching the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. He wanted to defend it. So look at his message, starting in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both in the law of Moses and the prophets. We don't know all the details of that morning to evening message. But we know it's complete. We know it's thorough. We get some indication of the effect that it has, and we see the parameters of it. But can you imagine people coming to hear, eager to hear, tell us about this, and Paul takes all day long telling them about Jesus. Look at the effect, verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And Jesus made that statement, the statement of the prophet, the statement of a text that they knew but had never applied to themselves. They couldn't bear it. And arguing and fighting, they, they leave. That dispersed them. What was Paul telling them about the gospel in this conversation? Let me give you sort of the parameters of it. First, Paul is making it clear that our gospel is a kingdom gospel. It's a kingdom gospel. It's not just an individual forgiveness gospel. 
It's not just a personal relationship gospel. It's a kingdom gospel. The story from beginning to end is this. We live in a world dominated by an evil king. And we have submitted ourselves to the rulership of that king. When we sin, the consequences of that kingdom were death. We live in darkness, and the end is death. This is the kingdom, and Jesus comes into this world as a liberating king. He comes in as a liberating king. When Jesus begins the gospel account himself in Mark's gospel, he says, the kingdom of God is here. He's announcing that I have come to do battle for your sake. I will fight sin and temptation, and I will win. I will never succumb to it for your sake. I will battle temptation for you so that when I suffer, when I am judged and crucified, it'll be for the sins that you've committed. And then I'll fight against death itself, and I will win, and I will be raised for your sake, and I will destroy your great enemies, sin and death. And I will give you life. I will liberate you from this kingdom of darkness. And I will rescue you and bring you into the kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom that he's given me. A liberating king frees us from this kingdom. It's a kingdom gospel. He's saying King Jesus has come, but not to defeat the Romans. Not to fix your current political, social, cultural, financial situation. It's to liberate you from a dark kingdom that would destroy your life. It's a kingdom gospel. He says our gospel is a covenant gospel. There's a continuous thread that started in Genesis and carries all the way through till we get to Revelation and the final consummation of it, that God has made a promise from the very moment when we sinned or sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, God began a promise of redemption, restoration of everything that was broken. He makes a covenant and Jesus is the promised Savior the Savior that the law demands. The law demands perfection. This is who God is. This is what God expects. And none are guiltless. So how will we stand before God? Guilty per the law that He's given. Jesus is the promised Savior, keeping the law. And He's also the one the prophets foretold. And so it's, imagine as Jesus is telling this. He's telling about the kingdom. He's telling about the invasion of Jesus into this world. He's talking about what Jesus did to defeat our enemy. He's talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that you've ever known. I can just imagine Paul masterfully all day long connecting the dots from Genesis all the way up to the time of Jesus. He talks about Noah as a foreshadowing of salvation and grace. And he talks about Abraham and the promise that God gave him, not because he deserved it, but because God in his grace chose him and invited him in and made a promise to him. He talks about David and the throne that he promised to establish forever and ever. He talks about the prophets and the details foretelling the birth of Christ. He talks about Jesus coming into the world. It's a covenant gospel. But as we see from their response, the gospel is a divisive gospel. It's split right down. We don't know the percentages, but it cracked that group wide open. Some believed. Some were convinced, the Scripture says. Some disbelieved. This gospel is, is divisive. Why? Because the gospel is not... How do I say this to make sense? The gospel is not primarily a plan of salvation. It's not primarily three things to say or do or believe. It's, it's not the ABCs of anything. The gospel is a proclamation. This is what God has done 
This is who God is. This is what God has done through His Son. It's a proclamation of King Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. And that proclamation deserves a response. What will I do with this? If I identify as a sinner in need of saving, then the gospel is great news for me. If I don't, if I'm not convinced, if I'm not convinced of my need for Him, if I'm not convinced of the truth of what He said, if I'm not convinced of the worth of what He did, then I'll be like these and I'll just disbelieve. You see, this response says, as King, as Messiah, as Lord, Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only possible way. He's the only possible way that anyone, anywhere can be made right with God. That's why He came, to be the Savior. So again, some were convinced. I like making the parallels between Acts and Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because we see the behind the scenes of what Paul was thinking and feeling and teaching as a result of what he was experiencing in Rome. At the end, near the end of Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, there's this little statement. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How cool is that? I mean, I know that's one of those verses, if you're just reading Philippians, you fly right through. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How were there saints in Caesar's household? Because in chapter 1, Paul said, these chains that I'm in, they really serve to advance the gospel. So now the gospel has even penetrated the household of Caesar himself. There were Christians there because of all of this. Some were convinced, and we'll see the fruit of it later. But some disbelieved. Some disbelieved, and sadly, they're unbelief, disbelief. And, and the difference between unbelief and disbelief is one is presented in passive terms and one is presented in active terms. There are people around us who don't believe. They live in a, a, in a condition, a state of unbelief. Often, their unbelief is simply the result of ignorance. No one's ever told them. Or we've, or we've masked the truth in such simplistic, superficial terms that the real gospel's not there. We simply talked about God's love for everyone, or God's in everyone, or God's everywhere, or you know, all those kind of things, nebulous kind of esoteric concepts of God. They're in a state of unbelief, and they don't know. And of course, the means to conquer that unbelief is with the truth, with love and truth. Others are in a state of disbelief. Disbelief is active. That's one who's consciously considered. That's one who's heard. That's one who's evaluated and rejected or refused it. And this is the condition that we see here as Paul addresses these people, it's not just unbelief because they're not ignorant. They are without excuse. He's presented the gospel and certainly clearly. I mean, I know sometimes we get a little squirmish and the foam in those seats gets a little thin after 40, 45 minutes. Paul talked all day long. I doubt he left anything unsaid. I doubt there was a single important point he didn't make. Now, they know the story, but they're refusing it. They disbelieve. You see, the three means of human perception are all highlighted here. Eyes, Ears, a heart, the center of me in in Hebrew thought, the deciding portion of me, the feeling, deciding, choosing portion of me, all of these things. Their ears hear the right sounds and words. Their, their, Their eyes see the sights, but they don't really perceive it. They they don't get it, they don't choose it. Because if they had of they would have done something in response. They would have repented, they would have believed, they would have embraced it. They would have said, 
God, have mercy to me, a sinner. Thank you, God, for this grace that you give me that I don't deserve. But they, they don't. But what really wore them out is when Paul quoted Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. You indeed will hear but never understand. You indeed will see but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull with their ears. They can barely hear with their eyes. They've closed lest they should see with their ears and hear with their, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Why is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 true? Because people had willfully rejected what was true right in front of them. They chose this. They, they, they chose this. And so what you see is a statement of, of judgment. This is divine judgment. And in response to their divine, I mean, in response to their rejection, the divine judgment of God now includes God's portion in it. Now you can't see it. And now you don't understand it. And now you can't receive it. Now I'm taking part in this. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 11, particularly regarding the Jews. He said, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, a Messiah. That's what he's talking about. Failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So as they hear and refuse to believe, as they see but don't want to believe what their eyes tell them, as they harden their own hearts, God responds and does the same. Divine judgment. And it won't change until God lifts it. And that's why Paul prayed when he's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. We're praying that God would cause light to shine, just like he did at creation when light shined in darkness. That God would lift, and he uses the word the veil, the veil that has covered them. Until God does that, there is, there is no hope. What's he talking about here? He's talking about grace. It's just grace. Why would anyone ever believe this? Why would anyone who once rejected it, refused it, been hardened towards it, denied it, ignored it, etc., why would they finally embrace it? The grace of God. See, God now causes their eyes to see what they haven't seen, and the ears to hear what they haven't heard, and a heart to want something they never wanted. When that happens, you know that's God. That's what God did for Paul. That's what God will do for everyone who believes. That's what Paul prayed that God would do for every person that he ever spoke to. God's grace. Look at the conclusion of Acts chapter 28 and the conclusion of the book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's kind of, as I titled it, a curious non-conclusion to the book of Acts. So we've been following Paul's story since his conversion. And we know by his own testimony the kind of guy he used to be and what he used to do. He's told his own story, his own life. We've seen him be miraculously transformed by Christ, miraculously delivered from the old world he used to live in, transformed into the foremost of the apostles. We've seen his journeys, his life, we're probably a little bit let down that when we get to the end of the book of Acts, we don't know how it all ends. Where, wait, what, what happened? He lived there two years and that's it? Like, where's the rest of this? What's, the, what's part three of the drama here? 
it goes to show us that the story of Acts was never intended to be Paul's biography. That's not what Luke was writing. That's not what the Holy Spirit was giving us. Nor was that what the Holy Spirit was giving them. The book of Acts has always been a revelation of God's glory. God's glory and the story of His Son and the work of God to get that story to the nations. That's what Acts is really about. God sent His Spirit and He empowered His people and He commanded them to go. And when they didn't, by His own providential grace, He dispersed them because of persecution and difficulty. And then he took one of the foremost opponents, no, the foremost opponent of that group of early believers, and he saved him. He saved him. He saved him from death and darkness, and he gave him life, and he sent him on a mission. And by God's design, he sent it from place to place to place, continuing to just echo out farther and farther and farther, all the way to Rome. This is what God has been doing to reach the nations. That's the story. And so the story is still ongoing. There is no end to the book of Acts until Jesus returns. You'll go to the nations and you'll keep going. And as you go, you'll keep taking the good news of Jesus. You'll keep speaking. You'll keep being bold. You'll keep being opposed. But you just keep going. You keep going. The message in Acts is this. Paul is one day going to die. But the gospel is not. The gospel is not going to die. It's not dependent on Paul. It wasn't dependent on Peter. It's not dependent on James or John. Those men are all going to end. Their life, their influence, their impact, their ministry, gone. But the gospel is going to keep going over and over. And that's the final point to the message that Paul was giving, both with his life and with his words. Our gospel is unhindered. It's an unhindered gospel. Paul lived there two years at his own expense, welcoming all those who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and the last two words of Acts, without hindrance. Or maybe in your translation, one last word, unhindered. Unhindered. You see the irony here? Frequently, Paul was in shackles. And Paul spoke of his own chains. We know about his imprisonments and his beatings. The gospel has never been in chains. It's never been shackled. It can't be stopped. It can't be silenced. This is the promise of God. This is one of the foundations for our boldness. We keep speaking, not simply because this is true, but because it's supernaturally true. And it's going to go where God intends it to go. It's going to have the effect that God intends it to have. And whether you and I are part of it in the short run or the long, whether our window of opportunity is brief or extended, whether we do it unhindered like Paul did at the end or we do it in chains, the gospel is going to go forward. See, this gospel is going to be threatened over and over and over, and every person who carries it, but it's never going to be silenced. Never going to be silenced. In our modern cancel culture, people who speak of Christ, particularly the exclusivity of Christ, are going to be quickly shut down. I mean, we've seen just snapshots of this all over for paying attention. Adult pedophilic draft queen, uh, uh, transvestite men can read books to children in libraries, but you'd be hard-pressed to find libraries that will allow someone to tell the story, the history of Christ. Though thank God here, we still have some opportunities, and our people have been sharing that gospel, and 
few classrooms this past week. We're seeing this sort of shifting all over. Threatened, but no, you'll never be silent. Not because we're strong, but because God is. The hero of Acts, for the good of all those people who heard the gospel and responded to it, is in the end not Paul, but God. God who worked through him. So because of that, what's our, what's our challenge? Love fiercely, like Paul. What drove him to keep giving the gospel to a people who opposed him, abused him, rejected him, arrested him, wanted to kill him over and over? Read Romans. Read Romans chapter 9 and following Paul's love for his own people. Love fiercely, speak boldly. Speak boldly. Speaking boldly is not the same thing as speaking offensively, antagonistically. It's not cutting the edges off the truth that might jab or poke, that might be rejected or even be offensive to some. Speak boldly. Tell the whole story. And trust fully. Trust fully. When I say trust, I'm not talking about in you. I'm talking about in God, knowing that the Word of God always will accomplish the work of God. And it's unhindered, so we let it, let it go. Let it out there. If the enemy would silence anything from us, it's not our opinions that he'd be targeting first. Our slogans, our phrases, it would be the Word of God. We would hold it back. Or that we would only give the more palatable parts. Or that we would only give it in parts. Trust the Word of God to accomplish the work of God. Again, I'll leave you with these three words that I think both define Paul's life and Lord willing would define ours. Faithful. Faithful to King Jesus. He's the King. We need to be faithful to Him. Never denying, never shirking the responsibility, never ashamed of our true identity. We're part of His kingdom. He has rescued us and we are His. Faithful, faultless. We'll not be sinless for sure. Well, let's be as faultless as we can be before this world. So when they accuse us, as they will, it won't be because of wrongdoing. When persecution comes, it won't be because we have done evil, but because we've spoken truly. Fearless. Fearless. Fearing God, not man. Esteeming the value of God, the worth of God, the weight of God, higher than any person's opinion of value. Faithful, faultless, fearless. Let's pray. Father, make it so of us. Give us spine, backbone, courage, determination. Make us resolute, unshakable. Father, may we be committed to lives of, of holiness that represent you well. That when the world accuses, we won't be silenced because we're guilty. We won't lose our voice because it doesn't match, because our life doesn't match what we say. Father, keep us faithful. Faithful. Father, I look at this big picture of Paul's life and I see an internal perspective, a confident certainty, um, an enduring hope that his life our lives well living or dying that we bring honor to you whatever it may be 
But we are not our own. We've been bought with a price and we're going to glorify you. We're just going to glorify you. We belong to you. Father, I thank you for the testimony of Paul. I thank you for the challenge he issued to every believer, not just those present in his life, but through the words you inspired him to write to our lives, to follow him even as he follows you. And I pray this would be our mindset too. That, Lord, while we draw breath, our lives would be faithfully pleasing to you. We wouldn't shirk back from the truth, but speak it with boldness. We'd be fearless, trusting you, knowing that you hold us in your hands, and one day, one day, one day, I'm going to see you face to face, and it'll all be worth it, so worth it. We'll have nary a, a scant moment of regret in eternity for doing the hard things, for saying the true things, for choosing the right things. So Father, keep us faithful, I pray to you, to, to the end. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response, and I hope it just resonates with you, encourages you, speaks to you. As we do, as we're standing and singing, God's people are singing, if something you heard today hit the mark of your heart. You know, maybe you heard it differently today, or you see it more clearly today, you feel it and want it today, then let me challenge you, let me encourage you. Do the best thing you could do for yourself. Step out of that row of seats that you're in. I'll take the hand of one of us standing here, and let's talk about Jesus and you. Let's talk about your relationship to God and what Jesus has done for you and how the good news of the gospel can be yours, can be your life-saving, life-changing, future-altering, hope-giving, eternity-shaping truth today. Respond. Christians, let's respond with our singing, with our hearts to the Lord. Let's be doers of the as we sing together.